Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So, I don't know about you, but when I find a bug in my house, I try to deal with it responsibly. I ask it a few questions about where it came from, what its intentions are. I don't kill it right away. Uh, If it can be ushered outside without squishing it, I try to do that. You know, and I guess maybe I make an exception for something that I think is going to sting me really hard. Um, So I, I hope I'm kind of at the good end of the spectrum of bug treatment. But I also think that an awful lot of you out there, if you see a bug in the house, you kill it. Um, If you see a bug outside, you think it's getting a little too close to you, you kill it. And one of the things, if there's going to be a takeaway from today's show, uh, I hope it is that that's not necessarily a good response. Uh, There aren't too many bugs in the world. There might not be as many bugs as would be ideal in the world. And it certainly uh, doesn't make any sense to, I mean, judging a bug the way that we judge bugs these days is sort of like judging the entire human race by Charles Starkweather or Jeffrey Dahmer or something, you know? In other words, yes, there are some actually dangerous bugs and there's some bugs that can bite you or sting you and make you itch and hurt, but they represent such a minority and they, I also think, represent very much of our attitudes about bugs and I don't think that's good. So that's one of the many things we're going to talk about today. I'm going to stop talking and get uh, you introduced to our guests. Um, Let me tell you, in the second segment of the show, we will talk about some of the bugs that, you know, maybe deserve a bad reputation. Um, although even that's very sort of anthropocentric. I mean, they're just being bugs, right? They're doing, but they can sting you, they can bite you, they might be poisonous. We'll tell you about those. And towards the end, we're going to play with bugs in the studio. I should also say that Josh Nalea, who produced this show, thought that it would be good to have live bugs in the studio and that somebody with entomophobia should be in the studio, that's fear of bugs, um, being exposed to these bugs. And then it turns out that the person, there's two people here who have entomophobia. One of them is John Dankosky, who said that he would be willing to participate in this only if he were allowed to kill the bugs immediately, <laughs> uh, which we thought was suboptimal. Uh, and then Josh, Josh, the producer of the show. So he's going to be in here being afraid of bugs. Uh, right now in the studio with me is Dr. David Wagner, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and director of the Center for Conservation and Biodiversity at UConn. As you can guess from that title, he's probably not in favor of random bug murder, but we'll come to that. Uh, Joining us by phone uh, is David McNeil, Denver-based journalist and contributor to Wired, Vice, and other publications. His new book is called Bugged, the the Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. So David McNeil, uh, make the case that, um, by the numbers anyway, insects rule the world? How many of them are there relative, relative to how many of us are here? Yeah, well, well thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, and let me just go ahead and say uh, <laughs> there's probably at any time about 10 quintillion bugs. Yeah, quintillion um, with a Q. I don't really know what a quintillion is, but this sounds like an awful lot. Zeros. Yeah, um, zeros. yeah, no. Th- so imagine, you know, 1.4 billion insects per person on Earth. Right. So I've, I personally have 1.4 billion insects, more or less, assigned to me, as does every other living, breathing human being. That's right. Uh, 
I'd like to know most of mine by name, if possible, but I, I don't think that's and so. And how many different kinds of ins, of living insects are are known of? Oh, I, I mean, there's there's so many. I mean, the largest, uh, you know, I think uh, beetles actually have the largest numbers. Uh, right. There's over three hundred thousand uh, species. Um, just species of beetles, not 300,000 beetles, 300,000 species of beetles, hence J.B.S. Haldane's famous quote, which he probably didn't say, although he wrote something kind of like this. They asked him, supposedly he was asked if his study of biology had taught him about the mind of God, and he said he is extraordinarily fond of beetles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Seems to have made a lot of, uh, of them. So, um, so uh, I, there are a lot of bugs, uh, David McNeil, but there's also, I think, the fear that we have, uh, uh, particularly in a time of climate change, that bug species might be going in extinct. How much do we know about that? Um, well, it's actually hard to really tell. Uh, that's the unfortunate side of things. I mean, you could have uh, insects, let's say you go to a site and pick up some species, and uh, put them in a cabinet, and then mm. 30 years later, after you know comparing to the species you found back then to now, they're gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just gone. I mean, there's no sign of them dwindling or <laughs> much of that anyway. Um, you know, some one biologist actually posits that you know over six over the past 600 years there have been like 44,000 species lost, mm. um, and only 70 or so were actually recorded. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. You know, uh, yeah, let's see if David Wagner can help us understand this a little bit. What what reason do we? I mean, obviously, if there's climate change, bugs are embedded in the ecosystem like almost nobody else. Presumably, that does constitute a threat to them. Well, there's so many that uh, with climate change, there's going to be winners and losers. So mm-hmm. uh, Connecticut, for example, is seeing lots of new insects moving in from the south. We have giant swallowtails now, pipevine swallowtails. They're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But some of the things that lived in bogs, uh, some of the things that required maybe glacial or boreal forests are starting to retract and recede uh, towards the poles. Right. So uh, just straight up climate change, just straight up, straight up temperature change, that means they maybe move their habitats around and the ones that really need it to be really cold, they're going to run out of room at some point, right? Absolutely. And so we always think about global warming when we talk about climate change. But actually, I think in terms of a deal changer for biota all over the planet, it's actually going to be changes in water, uh, particularly droughts and mm-hmm. fires and those sorts of things are really going to change organismal distributions. How about le- uh, late pollution? Uh, light pollution is really a big deal, and so we're, we're seeing pretty massive insect declines, very serious ones that we worry about in northern Europe. Uh, we're starting to see them now in New England, uh, populated areas of Australia, California, and we think part of that is light pollution. And we don't really know why we're seeing these declines, but it's, it's really a big deal because when we have insect declines, we have bird declines. Uh, the way you make a nestling is to feed them insects. Uh, that's almost universal, especially for songbirds. So, but uh, we're talking about a 70% decline in insect biomass in many areas of the planet over the last half century. And, and you know, I mean, one thing that we uh, term that we see slung around a bit is the so-called windshield phenomenon, which is this kind of anecdotal sense that people have. That, in fact, my friend Roy Blunt once wrote a book that was subtitled "I'm Just a Bug on the Windshield of Life," uh, and we have this sense that years ago the snowdrifts were bigger and there were more bugs getting squished on our windshields, and so there must be fewer bugs now. What about that, David Wagner? 
Well, we don't have many long-term studies, but it looks like very serious declines in places where we do have abundance data for the last 50 years. Uh, England, uh, Germany, and uh, New England, we're seeing, in fact, far fewer bugs than we had when we were children or uh, 30, 40 years ago. So it's not just the bug parents are saying, look both ways before you cross the road. There actually are fewer, fewer yeah, bugs. Yeah, and we don't know what the cause is. That's one of the most alarming things. It could be death by a thousand cuts. It could be a little pesticides. It could be development and changes in land use. One of the most serious things and one of the highest correlated causes of the demise is changes in agriculture. We've gone from many small family farms Mm -hmm. to commercialized agriculture with a lot more industrial input. And that uh, could have huge consequences for a lot of the biodiversity that was around the small farms and in pastures and the like. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. So um, let's go back to the other David. David McNeil, um, some people might be listening and going, well, yeah, who cares about bugs? And what do they? What do the bugs ever do for us? And, and there's a lot that the bugs have ever have done for us. And and now they're being used in advanced medical technology. I want you to give us an example. So, uh, how about a tumor paint uh, from scorpions? Tell us that story. Oh yeah, um, yeah, tumor paint. Uh, that was this. So there's this Deathstalker scorpion, and. Um, what a couple of scientists in Washington found out is that uh, this particular uh, scorpion, the, the venom, uh, clings to tumors. And so they hit it with fluorescence. So what they did then was inject this, you know, venom um, into people this, uh, that's been engineered, of course. Um, and the, it immediately clung to tumors in, like, um, you know, in tumors in the dog, for instance, is where they first were doing the initial study. And when performing brain surgery on the dogs, they saw the tumors light up in this green hue, and it glowed. And, like, it, it just it clarified things that an MRI scan could not uh, clarify at all. Like, it just, it could, you saw things that, you know, you wouldn't be able to. Right. And, and I want to give uh, another example. So, um, David McNeil, uh, tell, them, tell the listeners about search and rescue cockroaches. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so cockroaches are starting to be outfitted with uh, these kind of like implants that um, allow scientists to kind of remotely control them like an RC car. And so let's say there's a building collapse after an earthquake. Um, search and rescue is now looking to actually deploy these uh, out, you know, these biohybrid cockroaches um, into the field. And what they'll do is actually penetrate down into the dark places that you know people would not be able to reach. And uh, using radio waves, they'll be able to communicate whether or not there's like a pocket within the rubble. So a pocket where maybe a survivor might be someone um, you know waiting to be rescued. So it's they're sort of like uh, organic drones. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so David Wagner, there's other ways that bugs uh, help us and enrich our lives, and, and it doesn't necessarily require um, high science to do it. The bugs and the plants kind of do it on their own, and we just sort of reap the benefits. Um, some of these things are pl- things that plants do to attract pollinator bugs, right? I mean, maybe give the example of jasmine. Well, some of the most beautiful scents on the planet are probably produced by 
plants, flowers, particularly that bloom at night. So if you're a flower and you want to be pollinated by an insect and get your gametes from one individual to another, uh, you have to attract a pollinator. And colors like red and blue and yellow don't work uh, at nighttime, but a white does. But even better than uh, what color you are is what you smell like. And so gardenias and narcissus and jasmine, some of the most wonderful scents on the entire planet, some of the things that make it into our perfumes and and uh, products, human products, uh, lotions and the like, are actually put evolved to attract moths or evolved to attract pollinators. And we've co-opted these substances. So I would argue that uh, our dates and our partners might smell a heck of a lot better uh, <laughs> than, than they would have otherwise if there weren't this uh, relationship between pollinator and plants. And well, David Wagner, plants have two interests vis-a-vis -vis bugs. One of them is the one that we're talking about right now, attract pollinators. The other interest they have is to not get eaten by things that eat them. And that process produces some interesting compounds as well, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, when you're an animal uh, and things get bad, you can saddle up, get on your horse, and ride out of Dodge. But if you're a plant, you have to stand and deliver. And so plants have to come up with some means of protecting themselves from grasshoppers and caterpillars and all these things that would eat their, their leaves, their seeds, their flowers. And what they do is load their tissues with these secondary plant compounds. They're not necessary except for to discourage natural enemies. But we use these compounds, our resins, our, uh, uh, the rubber from the rubber plant, uh, latexes and uh, terpenes, and many of the spices that we would actually put into our food. Uh, our foods taste better because of this, this interaction between plant and insect. Uh, we have get many of our pharmaceuticals, uh, medical compounds, aspirin, taxol, uh, are coming from these secondary compounds manufactured by plants to protect themselves. And even our daily lives, things like caffeine and nicotine, all these alkaloids that we employ as humans are actually coming from the arms race between caterpillar and plant. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, li we're living in a bug's world. Uh, it's the bug's world. We're just renting here and, and taking advantage of some of the byproducts of bug and plant interaction. So, David McNeil, that con conjures up another question because people like to know what things are worth. So there was a study done about what contribution it could be argued that bugs make to the U.S. economy. What did they find out? Uh, they found... Um they found out that in the U.S. there's like $57 billion per year. And, I mean, and then there was this other study in 2008 that accounted uh, worldwide. It was probably $216 billion a year. Um, that's not even to, you know, talk about, I mean, they talked about, you know, some of the services as far as like dung beetles and just how much, how important they are to the agriculture industry. Um, pushing about like two trillion pounds of poop a year, um, which is quite a lot. And it actually, I mean, saved Australia in the, in the mid, you know, 20th century when they were struggling with flies, just, you know, these pests everywhere because there, was no, there were no dung beetles to take care of all this scat. Um, so do they, like, go get dung beetles? Yeah, so they, uh, there was an uh, uh, entomologist, um, George uh, Bornemisa, I'm butchering his last name, um, but he went to Africa and uh, found a couple beetles that would be, you know, the right uh, species, the ones they needed in Australia. They did some lab tests, and then they deployed them, and um, 
what's known as the or was known as the Australian salute, which is waving flies from your face, has kind of started to decrease and die down. Um, but what the most interesting thing that you know these two researchers in the U.S. found um, that were you know kind of calculating just how beneficial they are insects in general um, was the incalculable figure, which is how they recycle uh, rot and decaying matter. Um, our bodies, for one. I mean, right. maggots can shred us and make the whole process of decay easier. Right. So there's all these kinds of things. And I think pollination wasn't even included in a $57 billion uh, number. And so, yeah, I mean, you can't put a price on dung beetles um, or maggots shredding our bodies, uh, but people do attempt to anyway. And, and then, so David McDill, there are other kinds of economies connected to bugs, including apparently a thriving black market for bugs. Uh, so is this really true that I can buy bugs on eBay? Yeah, if you know someone. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you just got to be smart about it, but I don't recommend it yeah. <laughs> at all. <laughs> don't condone it in any way. Um, you know, it, I, when I was in uh, Japan, I got the opportunity, albeit, you know, briefly to meet um, one of the biggest smugglers in the uh, beetle world. And uh, he, he went by the name, you know, Beetle Master mm-hmm. was his nickname. And uh, this guy would take trips to Indonesia and just bring them back in his briefcase or, you know, store them in other places on his body. Um, and he did this for years until he was caught. But, uh, yeah, the, collecting beetles is such a huge thing in Japan that it's kind of opened up these, uh, you know, backdoor alleys and the places you never thought you'd find insects to, you know, I don't know, be. No, it's just the, the Indiana Jones movie they haven't made yet, really, uh, is like the back room in Hong Kong where they're selling the beetles. Well, David Widener, there are some uh, insects that are so rare and amazing, you can almost, although we would never endorse it, uh, you can almost understand why some Bond villain would feel as though he absolutely had one of them. Tell us uh, about, um, I don't even know if I'm saying that this correctly, but gyandromorphs? Gynandromorphs. Uh, Gynandromorphs. And these, these, are, these are organisms that are half male and half female typically. And yeah. so they're exceedingly rare and often sell. Uh, and this could be an illegal uh, legal auction. Mm. or And you can use eBay to sell bugs uh, illegally. Uh, you can sell whatever you want as long as they're not CITES protected or protected by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Endangered Species Act, that sort of thing. But uh, there are bugs that demand a high price, and I would imagine these mutants that you're talking about, um, the ganandomorphs, would be among them. Yale's got, the Yale Peabody's got one of the best collections in the world, thanks to the efforts of Charles Remington. Um, and these, we should say, these genandromorphs are—they're moths, right? Well, they could be any organism. Well, be any organism yeah. that's half male and half female. Basically, at the two-cell stage of the embryo, uh, one side of the Embryo becomes a male and one part becomes a female, but they're really beautiful when they're a butterfly. If you can imagine a butterfly where the males were orange and the females were blue, you'd have a butterfly that was half blue and half orange. It's quite spectacular in some species. Let me ask you this. If I could wave a magic wand and say, David Wagner, you can see, you, you can behold any, any bug that you've never seen before. Is, do you have a grail, a bug that you would like to meet someday, a bug that's rare or... 
or hard to, to come by? Well, there's the largest insect in the world called the white witch, and no one's ever found its caterpillar. And I would love to go to the Amazon and look for its caterpillar and, and find that and publish a paper on its life history. Maybe one of the most beautiful invertebrates, maybe one of the most beautiful animals on the entire planet is called the Madagascar sunset moth. And it's metallic with lots of tails, uh, fairly large, four inches across, but it's absolutely exquisite in terms of its colors, and I'd like to see that alive someday. What sort of bug is the white witch? The white witch is a giant 12-inch moth, and uh, it's very uncommon in collections, and so no one's actually ever seen its caterpillar yet. Um, One thing we might be doing a little bit later on the show, depending on how well we overcome our various phobias and and, uh, senses of revulsion, is uh, eating bugs. And so, David McNeil, we've done shows about this in the past, and I have already eaten bugs and and worms and stuff on on the air, but apparently I didn't eat enough of them. Uh, David McNeil, what did you find out about, about just the, the consumption of insects as foods by humans? Well, I found, I mean, well, you know, crickets, uh, it's been said many times before, are the gateway bug. Mm-hmm. And they, they're they delicious. I mean, you know, there's ways of preparing them that are quite nice. However, uh, what I found was that, like, when I actually dived a bit more into the just, you know, uh, bugs that were eaten regularly by cultures and just uh, foods that, you know, pe- appeal to people, um, I found some of the most exquisite and repulsive tastes um, for instance, I had these uh, locusts that were uh, fried in soy sauce, and um, they. What was special about these locusts was that they, you know, they fed off rice leaves, mm-hmm. and so when I bit into it, it had that nice, you know, crunch, that good mouthfeel. But then it was, I just got hit with this bright herbal taste that j- has just stuck with me, and I've never tasted anything like that. Um, I ended up eating like unknowingly, <laughs> unwittingly, just eating the whole bowl. Um, <laughs> and the other side. Where were that, your manners? Yeah. Well, you, you, okay, okay. There was one left as the courtesy locust. You know, you yeah. have to leave the courtesy locust. But um, yeah, there, the, on the other side of that, you know, uh, there was there was some that were pretty bad. Um, <laughs> I, I maybe don't recommend for those. Uh, uh, you know, first getting into it. Um, one was the diving beetle, mm-hmm. which, um, yeah, man, I mean, like, it, it's just like this ovular black marble, and it was just really hit hard to pick up with chopsticks. It kept, like, skating around the plate, but then when I finally got it, it crunched down into it, it has that hard shell wing, like the elytra, and as soon as you crunch down to it, it just releases this pop of juice, and it kind of tastes the way a drain pipe smells. Yeah. Um, so not the greatest. And then, <laughs> and then I had also centipede with, you know, very large centipede with legs that kind of felt like bobby pins as they were going into my mouth. Well, we um, should also mention uh, the yeah. um, kind of cheese that is eaten in Sardinia <laughs> and Corsica. Yeah. Tell us about that, David. Well, it's, I think it's called, if I remember correctly, the weeping cheese or yes. something like that. Casu Marzu. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um... Yeah, and and it's called the weeping cheese, or because maggots are inside, and they're um, yeah, there's this brown secretion coming down 
all over the cheese, and people eat it with the maggots still inside. It is actually it sounds disgusting with a little crusty bread though. It's delicious. All right, we're going to take a break, uh, and thanks uh, so much to David McNeil. David Wagner is staying with me for there's more fun to come. So we want you to love bugs and accept bugs and understand that they're incredibly important to your ecosystem. And don't kill bugs and think about bugs as part of a living bioorganism that you're part of. But there are also some really bad bugs, and we are going to tell you about the bad bugs. The red wasp's gonna swoop down and get your child. Won't give you a minute's rest. She's talking about bugs. Everywhere you look, there's another kind of bug. It makes you want to get a club and cloud them. Yes, everybody talks about the worrisome bug, but ain't nobody doing nothing about it. All right, we're going to talk about... Uh, Bad bugs. Although that's a judgment call that we really shouldn't be making. Uh, and then, by the way, in the final segment today, uh, Nicole, the bug lady from the Peabody, is coming in and she's got bugs with us. And we're going to have bugs running around the studio and hissing cockroaches. And Josh Nalea, the producer of this particular episode, turns out to be afraid of bugs. So he's going to be in here trying to conquer his fears, probably without much success. In the studio right now with me to protect me from any bugs uh, that might want to get me is Dr. David Wagner, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and director of the Center for Conservation and Biodiversity at UConn. Joining us right now is uh, Amy Stewart, New York Times bestselling author and lecturer on horticulture and the natural world. She's the author of Wicked Bugs, which was just released in a new edition for young readers. So, um, before we get to Amy, Dr. David Wagner, I mean, I think one thing we have to say is, you know, that, yes, from our point of view, there are wicked bugs. But from the bug's point of view, they're just doing what they need to do, right? Every bug that's going to bite you has some reason for doing it? Yeah, they're trying to protect themselves. So some do it with toxins, some do it with stings, uh, some actually bite or uh, have hairs that are, are urticating. But for the most part, that's a small fraction of all the bugs out there. Most bugs are palatable or and are really important in the diets of birds and bats and even grizzly bears. And Amy, uh, I should say, that has been was sort of very much on your mind, too, that people are afraid of all kinds of bugs that they don't need to be afraid of. So one way to start would be to say, okay, this is the small group of bugs that you do need to be afraid of. Do I, do I understand your purpose correctly? Yeah, well, you know, my idea when I started this, I had already written Wicked Plants. And, you know, you guys were talking about how plants defend themselves earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and it was so easy to come up with a really long list of plants that, that would be poisonous or harmful if you ate enough of it. But when I did Wicked Bugs, I had the opposite problem, which is there's really very few that I could round up. <laughs> that that are things people might not want to meet in a dark alley. So, you know, my idea was to was to kind of have fun with it and to really tell the stories of, of individual people or in some cases even communities um, who had experienced some harm by insects or spiders or that that were just trying to make a living. You know, they they are just living their lives. It's just that we get in the way of that sometimes. Right. Although we have to should say that all bugs in Australia are poisonous because everything in Australia is poisonous. Cats in Australia are poisonous. They have <laughs> neurotoxic fangs. Don't go to Australia. Everything there is poisonous. So, Amy, let's let's get specific here and let's uh, let's start with the uh, the apex predator, sort of the most powerful hornet sting in the world. Tell us about the yak killer. 
Uh, yes. So um, the one of the things I love about this, the Asian giant hornet, is that it is really big and impressive looking. And so uh, people always expect that I'm going to have these these terrifying creatures with me when I show up. And I actually do have one that's you know entombed in um, in plexiglass. Um, so this is a the Asian giant hornet lives in Japan, and it's um, it it does have a very venomous sting and it really, um, it, it could be fatal, especially to a young person or, you know, an elderly person or someone who's sick or immune compromised. Um, and the, and, and the expert on this hornet in Japan, uh, has been stung by it and says that it felt like a hot nail going through my leg. Well, um, so that's a good reason not to let one sting you then. Uh, do they mean they live in G Asian giant hornet? I assume that means that they, they don't be, they're not flying around New Jersey. That's right. Um, but they do get into cities um, and, and they'll dig through the trash looking for food. They'll look for little scraps of, uh, of meat or something. So, so they can actually show up in Tokyo. You might see one. Um, but, but there's a cool thing about them, which is that they, they attack honeybee hives. Um, and it's a pretty monstrous, it's like something right out of a monster movie, these giant hornets descending and really ripping apart um, honeybees. And uh, bet, honeybees bet, have a way of... I bet oh, honeybees don't think that's a cool thing about them. No, they don't think that's a cool thing about them, but they, they uh, have evolved this very cool defense, which is that if they swarm around a single Asian giant hornet, uh, in a dense enough swarm, they create enough body heat to cook it to death. Hmm. Well, that no, that is a cool thing. Uh, yeah, that's the, remarkable. Like, the, talk about teamwork, the, right? The thing I don't like about the Asian giant hornet, like on the list of things I don't like about the Asian giant hornet, if I understand your uh, reportage correctly, Amy, is that when they sting you, they leave a pheromone that kind of it, it's like a no, like a vacancy sign or something for other hornet <laughs> hornets, right? Come sting this person. <laughs> Like, like, look, I found a good one. Yeah. yeah. And that's also how they find honeybee hives. So, uh, and, and that's, you know, I mean, again, that's an everyday part of insect communication, really. But, um, but it, in our case, it's not so great. And, and isn't there juice? Like, I actually, at one point, I was writing a piece for uh, Men's Health, I think, about uh, energy drinks. And there was something called hornet juice that I drank. But I think, and I think it's actually, it wasn't really the hornet juice. But it, isn't there something that they do get out, some liquid they get out of these hornets? Yes. So this is how they feed their young is that they uh, or, or actually how the young um, feed the parents is that they uh, the, the larva produces these little drops of clear liquid um, and, and it's called a kiss. And so the parents will take this kiss from the from the young and it's a source of, of energy for them. So that has been harvested and tried out as like a performance enhancing drug. Um, so, yes. Yeah. So, so, well, you know, David Wagner, as you're sitting here, I mean, I think for a lot of us, hornets and wasps are among the animals, which if they get in our house, we feel okay about killing them before they sting us. Is that a reasonable approach or should we, should there be kind of a gradient of hornets and wasps, some of which we should re regard more benignly? Well, I generally try to usher things out, but uh, I, I think hornets and wasps are on the uh, okay side of, of swatting and making sure that they don't sting someone, particularly if there's any infants or um, as mentioned, if there are elderly people, 
And there's also the possibility that certain people are allergic. I mean, one wasp or one peanut uh, can be dangerous to the wrong person. Uh, but for the most part, I, I move things out. Uh, spiders are the one thing where I have a real dilemma in terms of which ones live and which ones uh, don't actually make it outside. Well, uh, like you're an entomologist. Can't you tell which spiders are okay and which ones aren't? Well, there's one in, in Connecticut called the yellow sack spider, and I'm not actually sure what it looks like, but if it, I think it might be one uh, based on its web and that sort of thing. Usually I don't even, that one doesn't make it outside because it can cause a secondary infection, a bacterial infection. The spider itself, the bites uh, aren't that big a deal, but it's a secondary mm -hmm. infection from staph or strep or something like that, something that's already on your skin that could be problematic. Well, I mean, how about brown recluse spiders? I've been taught to be worried, worried about them. Yeah, and, right. So, and that uh, their bite is kind of flesh-eating or something. Yeah, the bite is essentially painless. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, it, it secretes a toxin or places a toxin in your flesh that basically kills your tissue. And over the course, it takes about three to four weeks for it to even stop growing. So the wound will grow over a course of days. Uh, but there's a lot of necrotic tissue associated with that. And uh, again, it's the bacterial infection, secondary infection that becomes dangerous. All right. So um, there's so many things that I can say, but I'm going to just press on. So, Amy, you know, it is sort of when we watch movies, there's two kinds of spiders that we are encouraged to be afraid of because James Bond will wake up from a deep sleep and on his naked chest, if he's Sean Connery, they'll either be <laughs> a tarantula or a black widow crawling that Dr. No has had one of his assassins place uh, on his pecs. Uh, how worried should James Bond be about these spiders? About uh, about tarantulas or black widows for that matter. or black widows. Well, so the black widow thing um, is fascinating to me because one of the things I did when I was researching wicked bugs is I would look for uh, mortality reports and statistics about how many people are really injured or killed by any particular you know insect or spider that we're terrified of, and there just aren't that many with black widows. I mean, it it, it can be a problematic little little bite, but it's. it's generally not the end of the world. And we have this cultural fear of them, and it may be the name, yeah. it may be the, the appearance of them. But I went back through newspaper articles and looked for the earliest mentions I could find of the Black Widow as a terrifying thing that we should be so worried about. And it's really kind of a 20th century phenomenon that we so widely believe that it's a problem. Right. And isn't it like some somebody who tried to kill himself using a black widow that kind of got this into the headlines? Yeah, there was this kind of crazy story. And this was 1935. Mm -hmm. um, it was reported in newspapers that a man um, tried to kill himself or did kill himself, but that the means of doing that was that he ordered black widow spiders through the mail from California. Um, that turned out later not to be true. He took sleeping pills. But this idea that someone's going to order a spider through the mail and just, what, I guess, let it walk around on them and that they could write out their suicide note and, and be gone, that just captured the public imagination so much that I think it, it, it became a, a much bigger deal. And, you know, this is the power of a good story, right? 
Right. So very, yeah. Yeah, before we run out of time, Amy, we also have to talk about efforts to weaponize uh, some of these uh, bugs. I mean, we talked about um, much more benign and even helpful uses uh, of, of bugs in the first segment, the search and rescue cockroaches who find us under the earthquake rubble. But there are also people and some of them working for you know U.S. agencies like DARPA trying to figure out if some of these bugs can be used for the more brutal arts of war. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm fascinated with the idea that, you know, this really goes back a very long way. Um, but the but the DARPA stuff tends to be about putting like so one idea might be, oh, well, let's let's figure out a way to get computer chips inside of caterpillars and just turn them loose so that they can go ahead and become the 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 butterfly that they're going to be. And then we can use that computer chip to like a little tiny drone. You know, we can fly them over enemy territory. We can maybe pick up some intelligence. So that sounds so crazy, but really we've used bugs in war in, in, in one way or another for probably thousands of years. You know, this sort of old, old idea of let's fill a basket or a, maybe like a clay vessel with stinging insects, let's put in let's put in scorpions or let's let's put in hornets and then let's fling it at our enemies. There's plenty of of early writings about that, whether it's the Greeks, the Mayans did that. So we have definitely weaponized um, insects before. Well, if you want to know more about that, I think uh, what you have to do is obtain a copy of Amy Stewart's book, Wicked Bugs, which has just been released in a new edition for young readers so that you and your children can talk about necrotic flesh right before they drift <laughs> off to sleep. Right. Um, yeah, enjoy that. Right. So, uh, well, we've certainly enjoyed you, Amy Stewart. David Wagner and I are now crouching in a corner because it's time to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to have Nicole the Bug Lady turning bugs loose at our studio. We're actually not afraid at all, but. Don't let these bugs into heaven with me. Science says that a diet of seeds, berries, and bugs is optimal for nutrition. That's why every day, if possible, I eat a bird. When was the last time you saw a cat have a heart attack? Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf, Amanda Fish, Bugged Our Offices. Our interns are Evan the Moth and Ashley the Butterfly. The part of Bill Curry is played by Nathan Lane. On tomorrow's show, the understanding gap between Americans and the rest of the world. And now, back to Colin. All right. We're having loads of fun in here already without you. So I'm glad you uh, came back to join us. So uh, joining us in the studio right now is Dr. Nicole Palfi-Muharai. Did I do it okay? Yes. Okay. Uh, she's an assistant in entomology at Yale's Peabody Museum in New Haven. Still with me is Dr. David Wagner, who's offered to fling his body uh, in the path of any tarantula making its way toward me, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and director of the Center for Conservation and Biodiversity at UConn. And also in studio is the ordinarily fearless Josh Nalea, who, believe me, has done lots of things that I wouldn't dream of doing in his, in his life. But it turns out he has a little, and he is the producer of this particular episode, but it turns out he has a little bit of a, what would we call this? Kind of a, a weak spot or a scared spot or something, right? Uh, I think the term is entomophobia, and I'm, yeah. I'm certainly on that, that list. So, like, you're really nervous already. For example, yeah. Nicole, who's an extraordinarily sadistic person, has That's left true. the tarantula... <laughs> 
in a Tupperware but has left the lid somewhat ajar <laughs> so that you have to worry that the tarantula is going to push the lid up and, uh, and come get you. First of all, Nicole, uh, how worried should Josh be about this tarantula? Um, this tarantula's bite is not damaging to humans, so right. he should not be worried at all. It ah. might irritate him, but we're also not going to let it bite him because right. that would be sadistic. Right. So the tarantula's name is Harriet? Yes, this is Harriet. She is a Haitian brown tarantula. She's a little high strung, so she may drop urticating or irritating hairs if she's distressed. That's the second time somebody has said urticating on the show, and I, I didn't ask the first time. So what does urticating mean? It means just irritating. Uh, the hairs are often barbed and have a compound on them that is irritating if they embed themselves in your skin. But they're not dangerous or damaging in a real way. But they're urticating. Um, it, David Widener, have you had experiences with tarantulas? Have you ever been bitten by one? Uh, I haven't been bitten. I've never picked one up except for I was on the Faith Middleton show and Richard Conniff pulled one out of his suitcase. And because, <laughs> because of the peer pressure, I, yeah. I picked it up. But I can tell you that my skin temperature was up quite a bit and yeah. I had a cold sweat. And you're a, you're a scientist. You're, you know, yeah. but, but that's sort of like an atavistic thing, right? Like you probably have – you weren't so much worried in a real way probably, but we just have the, they have this image or something? Well, we all have these innate or cultural fears, whatever they are. But uh, I, I do know that when I find a large spider on my skin or my clothing when I'm in the tropics, before I can even knock it off, I've already got an adrenaline rush yeah. mm -hmm. and, and I can, uh, you know, breaking out in a cold sweat. But I will pick up most spiders and I will pick up tarantulas, but I need to think about it. And I, they, they have to be moving slowly and I'm moving slowly. All right. So, um, yeah, I don't know if we'll have time for phone calls, but yes. Uh, oh, my yes. God. <laughs> so, Josh, yes, terrified. So Josh right now is making a really, really upset face. Um, He's hissing more than the cockroach. So we have to explain that there's hissing cockroaches out here. So, uh, Nicole, um, explain about the hissing cockroaches. Yeah, so we have some uh, Madagascar hissing cockroaches here. They hiss in three circumstances. One, if they're distressed. Two, if the males are fighting each other, or three, as a part of their courtship rituals, I'm going to see if I can distress them enough to make them hiss. I don't know if, if they're going to be willing to. None of them I would like to say to that be. they're being distressed in the most humane way possible. Uh, not I say just, she's got a okay. walking stick walking on her ear. Yeah. So. I just dropped one. We don't, they don't seem to be hissing, <laughs> unfortunately. Be fine. All right. Well, you can't, you can't make it happen if it's not happening. Uh, don't, step, I, don't step down. All right. right so there's – because John Dankowski, who's the other person here who doesn't – did John Dankowski – did I hear him say to you, Josh, that the only way he could participate in this segment would be if he could kill the bugs instantly? Yeah, I, I asked him again to take my place in this segment. He flat out refused. Yeah. So, Josh, just while she's uh, uh, shepherding or mm. wrangling her cockroaches, what do you got out now? Oh, there. Can he's we hear hissing. that? He's hissing. That is so awesome. That is so... I don't think I've ever been prouder as a broadcaster. That's really cool. Yeah, but he's like right on the mic, hissing. <laughs> that is incredible. That is so cool. So, and these cockroaches, I would say, are... Yeah, David. Well, how would you? How big would you say they are? They're like two to three inches, yeah. two and a half. Um, so these are big cockroaches. These are big cockroaches. And Josh, how how would you describe what you're feeling right now? Uh, it's I'm kind of paralyzed, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's. Is somewhat, your heart beating really fast? Are you I sweating? Think so. I'm you, sweating. Uh, yeah. My temperature's up. I'm I feel kind of paralyzed. I can't take my eyes off them either, which the, is uh, Nicole. The, the walking stick is up on, on the top of your headphones ah, right now. Excellent. You're looking for it. 
So, so um, do we have anything more to say about the hissing cockroaches before we discuss? Well, cockroaches are interesting because they're detritivores, which means that they feed on uh, leaf litter and other decaying matter in the forest. And this is a really important role that insects play in the ecosystem because it's something that, you know, all plants rely on nutritious soil to grow. And in order for soil to develop, uh, it has to often go through the digestive system of insects. Uh, maybe this is a good segue into mentioning our bug-a-poop tea that yeah. we have here today. Well, yeah, there is there is a a an envelope here of bug-a-poop tea. Here, you hand it to me. But um, so this is um, aged moth larvae droppings in tea bags. Have you actually consumed the bug-a-poop tea? Yeah, I have actually. It's not bad. Tastes just like chicken, right? Uh, no, like more tea? like tea, but definitely an earthy flavor. Probably yeah. not coincidentally. Right. So, you, so you drank this with no ill effects. Uh, n- no. And it wasn't like really unpleasant to drink. No. All right. I, I don't mean to put words or bugs in your mouth, but um, but uh, but all right. And, and so you know, so David Wagner, cockroaches have this weird reputation, right? Because like if your people are looking at a bug in their house, and if it's a beetle, it's one thing. If it's a cockroach, it's another. They don't know which one. But if it's a cockroach, that's like bad, and that's an emergency on some other kind of level than if it's a beetle or a stink bug or whatever. Um, so is that just because like people associate it with I don't know bad urban living environments or something? I mean, why why do people care whether it's a cockroach? I'm not quite. You're not an expert on people. You're well, an I'm on not bugs. an expert on cockroaches either. They they don't really carry serious diseases. They can contaminate food and move, I guess, bacteria from one food source to another in your kitchen. They're very hard to control. They run very, very quickly. They're extremely fast. They're nocturnal. And so we don't really like them in our culinary preparation, our food places. But one of the reasons we don't like them is we can't get rid of them. They right. usually uh, signal infestation. Right. So uh, now, Nicole, uh, Josh has the walking stick. Yeah, which he, is not an actual stick. We should explain what the, what this bug is. Yeah, so I walking sticks are insects that mimic sticks. We mm-hmm. actually do have them natively here in Connecticut. The kind I have here today is a Vietnamese walking stick, which mm-hmm. is native to Vietnam, and they're a little bit larger than the native walking sticks we have in Connecticut. These are what would you guys say, maybe three inches long? I'd, I'd say longer. at least they're, yeah, longer yeah. than three inches. They're yeah, this guy's absolutely like six inches long harmless and their only defense mechanism is to pretend to be a stick so if that fails right. they're toast so josh's fear is maybe not too, based on any kind of uh, facts <laughs> I'm, I'm using the same defense mechanism right now as the walking stick i'm <laughs> standing very perfectly still, still hoping the walking stick doesn't notice doesn't you. realize yeah. i'm alive the worst yeah. that it's gonna do is walk mm-hmm. right Toward, towards me yeah. all right so, so uh, yeah, so no, I think that like right. if there is like a, such a thing as a harmless bug, that's you've got one right there. So I'm not saying that you have to do anything. Nobody's saying that you have to pet it or anything. But if you mm-hmm. wanted to, if you wanted to try to overcome your fear, I'm going to give it a and shot. And we're very near the hospital. We can take you right over to St. Francis <laughs> if you go into some kind of. I'm going to give this a shot. It, right. it might be the one and only time this do ever happens. Do you want help, Josh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll, yeah. I'll come. We should say that Josh knows Nicole, so there's kind of a trust factor, mm. although it may be somewhat it's misplaced. rapidly deteriorating. Yeah. All right. So let's, if it gets near my head, His I'm going to... His fingers gonna, are trembling. Okay, so she's putting <laughs> the cockroach on Josh's hand. It's not a cockroach. Oh. Like cockroach. Sorry, the walking stick. I was getting overexcited. I'm a poor bug announcer. <sighs> so the walking stick is now on Josh's wrist. And Josh is clutching an area near his heart anyway. I'm not certain that he's still breathing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, just breathe normally, Josh. Come on, breathe normally. 
It's just it's just one of God's creatures. All right. They're really quite beautiful. Yeah, and they actually are. If you look are. closely at them, they have a little bit of green on the underside, like yeah. a stick that is still partly alive. And they have a lot of detail. They have some spiny areas on their legs. They have very small faces, long abdomens. And they're quite delicate in the way that they move, perhaps to mimic a stick moving in the breeze. They walk very slowly. They also don't have much in the way of depth perception because their vision is different from ours. So they sometimes will bob a little bit from side to side in order to try and gauge distance. Um, there's a, not an entirely understanding the medium that we're working in here, Nicola. So brought in these kind of diorama type cases of various insects. Uh, and there's one. Is this a walking stick? Because this is like the biggest damn walking stick you ever saw. Yes, Colin. In fact, that is the biggest walking stick. So this drawer displays some of the largest insects in the world, including the walking stick we're seeing there, which from head to the end of the abdomen is maybe, you know, 10 inches long. We also have a couple of large moths in the drawer here. It, we have two. Is it, is it the white witch? What, yeah, I it? see it from here. Yes, yep, that's that a white witch. across the room. Yeah. Yep, and that's, you know, maybe seven or eight inches in diameter from wingtip to wingtip as well. Yeah, so but you've seen dead ones before. That's not, it doesn't do any good, right? Yeah, no, you need to see. I need a live female, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Is there? A, I won't ask why. Uh, that's it, your private life. It's funny. When Nicole was talking to Josh about the walking stick, that's how a therapist gets you through entomophobia or yeah. arachnophobia by t- talking about its various parts and how pretty it is. And, you know, oftentimes within an hour, people go from being completely paranoid to having a spider in the room to being cured. Yeah. Which is, uh, speaking of which, the tarantula is out now. I don't know if anybody noticed that. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was just a joke joke. It's <laughs> 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 a great joke, Colin. All right. So, um, and just so very quickly, um, Nicole, you you drank a bug poop tea. I assume you've also eaten bugs as, as well. Actually, I have not. Yeah. Oh, I, um, I mean, I've eaten more bugs than you have. Well, I haven't intentionally, yeah. certainly. Um, I am very fond of them, and I think I would feel oh, a bit strange about consuming them in that way. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say that at Mia Sushi in New Haven, it's not like bugs are on the menu all the time, but I'm pretty sure that I've had bugs there because I, I sometimes will go and sit at the table with my friend Bun Lai who runs the restaurant. And if he has anything really interesting like that, uh, I, I think we've eaten cicadas or something. Or maybe, I can, you know, anyway, you can get bugs at restaurants once in a while, right? I think there's also like a, like a cricket truck. The cricket the truck at the Yukon. Yukon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not a cricket truck. I think it's like a taco truck taco where they truck. Put, the, put the crickets on top. All right, I hear music playing in the background. That means we have to go. This has been so much fun. And thanks to David Wagner and thanks to Nicole the Bug Lady. I think you should trademark that name. I'll think about it. All right, and uh, thanks to Josh Nalea, the bravest man on earth. Yay. Bugs are really neat. Yeah, bugs are really swell. Did you hear the one about the bed bugs who met in a mattress? They're getting married in the spring.